0: With me in the studio is Phil Clark, who is the author of a really good critical engagement with the history and the work of the International Criminal Court, the ICC. And this is a book entitled Distant Justice, the impact of the International Criminal Court on African politics. And definitely worth getting your grabby hands on a copy of this one if you are interested in what goes on. In the continent, when it comes to justice and the need for justice, unfortunately, we live in a continent where there's been way too many wars that have ravaged parts of our continent, internist and battles between various factions, and it's often the people on the ground who desire justice, real justice, not just lip service to justice, who suffer. And of course, the question is, one of the many mechanisms in the world that were supposed to be a friend of African people were the ICC and their staff, and what goes on in The Hague. And the question is now, after so many years, around 16 or so, one can actually step back from the minutiae and ask a very simple question, which is the question I want to ask this half an hour with Phil, who's here with me in studio. Has the ICC hindered or helped justice in Africa? Phil, congratulations on the book, and um, thank you so much for joining me in studio.
1: Thank you, Eusebius. A real pleasure to be here.
0: And a weird little reunion for me and Phil. We overlapped, actually, with our studies at um, at Oxford. And it's always wonderful to see um, contemporaries doing so incredibly well. Uh, Phil is one of the global scholars who's an expert on the ICC. It's a real treat seeing you again. And really nice to reconnect in a, in a delightful studio here in Sands and <laughs> New Serbia. So wonderful to be here. Now, Phil, I want to start firstly. I want to keep it very fundamental, right, and basic. Um, and maybe we can have you back on a, on a second occasion. Because the truth of the matter is that even here and South Africa, even political animals, listening to this conversation right now. We make assumptions about what happens north of the Limpopo River. We actually often do not know the details, even of our own continent, sadly, as parochial South Africans. So I'm going to ask you some very basic questions. First, the overall conclusion of your book, because when we talk about the ICC, if I had to get my listeners to call in right now, there's a very divisive set of attitudes. People either think these guys are completely colonial, they hate Africa, why aren't they going after mongers like George Bush or Tony Blyer? And then you have the other extreme who basically think nothing happens on the African continent. So, of course, you need the ICC to supplement what goes on. Before we get into your argument and case studies... Let's go right towards the end. What is the conclusion that this book worked towards? And then we'll work back. So the
1: big conclusion to the book is that the ICC has been really undermining African countries' ability to deal with their own cases and their own crimes. that one of the big problems the ICC's created in Africa, uh, and if we look at the, the eight African countries where the ICC has been operating in, in the last 14 or 15 years, th- the court often has been doing the kinds of cases uh, that domestic uh, institutions should have been and could have been dealing with themselves. And, and so this is a, a court that is really intervening, I, I think, illegitimately in, in, in many parts of Africa. And then the other part of the conclusion is that uh, in doing so, um, the ICC is very consistently wedding itself uh, to powerful actors in Africa, and in particular, many African governments. And African governments uh, have become incredibly adept at using the ICC uh, as a weapon uh, to target their own political and military opponents. So the the ICC unwittingly, uh, in fact, is now entrenching often very criminal, very corrupt states uh, in Africa, and and this, I think, is also part of its its really negative consequence on the
0: continent. Let's judge it by the numbers. In how many African states have the ICC attempted or actually initiated cases against alleged war criminals? How many are ongoing? How many have been abandoned so that we can know on the record empirically whether or not justice has in fact been dispensed before we asked why those numbers look however they look? The the numbers are quite damning
1: because the the ICC has opened 28 cases in eight countries over the last 15 years. Of those 28 cases, uh, only five cases, in fact, have been completed. Wow five ICC cases uh, have collapsed uh, either either before or during trial and the other 18 cases at the moment really are going nowhere. Um, these are cases that are open but uh, they often involve rebel leaders uh, who are uh, still at large uh, and, and who the, co- the court can't capture and get into uh, the dock. Uh, in a couple of cases, ICC suspects have actually died. So uh, A couple of Darfurian rebel leaders and a couple of Ugandan rebel leaders have died uh, before they could be brought to justice. So you're talking about a court that has only completed five out of 28 cases Jeez. in 15 years and it's cost uh, the international community $1.7 billion um, to, to get to that result so so the numbers I think are, are quite damning even just to look at the court in that particular
0: way. I want to look at a couple of case studies and names that are familiar to us uh, sadly and have a look at what happened to these folks and then we'll try and learn lessons from them. You write for example on the former Congolese rebel leader in Vice President uh, Jean-Pierre Bemba, as well as the Côte d'Ivoire's uh, Laurent de Bacbeau. And each of those two names and the cases that you then explore, tell us something about, as you refer it to in the diagnostic part of the book, the structural problems with the court, as well as weaknesses in terms of staffing, the prosecutorial quality, evidence gathering, and what have you. Let's start with each one of those. I mean, how is it that these two, you know, what, what happened in these cases? Tell us the story.
1: Yeah, the, these are really two of the most important cases before the ICC. They were two of the highest-profile suspects. You've, you've got Bemba, a former vice president of Congo. You've got Bagbo, a former president of Cote d'Ivoire. Um, but both of these individuals uh, have been acquitted at the ICC in, in the last 12 months. A- and in many ways, it's fine for a court to acquit individuals if the evidence suggests that, that they, in fact, and were And you, you, you're very
0: clear on that, right? Because Absolutely. like. Many, I mean, here in South Africa, we do the same. We've got so much lawfare going on. We sometimes react to the outcome before we have a look at the legal reasoning. And I take it your criticism here is not so much the the fact of the acquittal in itself, as you as you say in the book, but rather what the acquittal acquittal reveals about the shortcomings of the institution.
1: Indeed, and I I think what we saw in both the Bamber and Bugbo cases was that the prosecution evidence was indescribably weak. This was such a a flimsy set of cases. And in the book, what I try to say is that the problems with the prosecution case go back to something really structural and fundamental about the ICC, which is it's trying to investigate very complicated cases in Africa from these very comfortable courtrooms in The Hague often with non-African personnel who, by their own admission, have almost no previous experience anywhere in Africa, were not familiar with the terrain, and were often being parachuted into places like Congo, Central African Republic, and Cote d'Ivoire for sometimes only seven or eight days, and were being expected to gather enough evidence to build these criminal cases in The Hague. And so what we saw with both Bemba and Bugbo was the judges, in essence, said this is not the kind of quality evidence that we would expect in any courtroom in the world. in particular, one thing that the prosecution was doing was not even uh, conducting their own interviews with eyewitnesses. They were relying on local media reports and reports being produced by human rights groups. The judges said, look, this is the kind of evidence that wouldn't stand up in any courtroom in the world, let alone here in The Hague in the International Criminal Court. And so I think when we talk about the Bemba and the Bugbo acquittals, what is particularly damning of the ICC is just how shoddy uh, that the, the evidence-gathering and, and the investigation ultimately were.
0: You know, Phil, one of the things I found interesting is that when you discuss, for example, uh, the violence that occurred after elections in Kenya around 2007, 2008, many hasty criti- hasty defenders of African uh, countries, or, or rather, let me put it this way, they, there's this perception that um, quite often what the ICC does is that it deliberately targets certain leaders on the African continent and it's blind to injustices in the rest of the world. But one of the more subtle sub arguments that you make in the book, and I want you to, to to just say a little bit about it, is that far from that being the case, sometimes because of the structural problem you've just articulated, you find wittingly or unwittingly, staff members, investigators, prosecutors at The Hague being inadvertently in cahoots with these State officials in many of these countries on the continent, and that's often to the benefit of warmongers sitting heads of government and to the detriment of people on the ground. And when I read that, I thought, you know what, this is such an important insight with evidence because you've crisscrossed the continent countless times, 10 plus years, so you've got the evidence, you know what's going on on the ground, and yet so many people are laboring under the misconception that, in fact, There is a deliberate attempt by the ICC to go after sitting heads of state in Africa. But you say that um, because they are hamstrung by their lack of local knowledge, they're often at the mercy of the people that should be dragged to the the Hague.
1: That's exactly right. I I mean, one of the things I argue in my book is that rather than seeing the ICC as this neo-colonial actor – which assumes that it's an all-powerful external body that is uh, you know manipulating these poor, defenseless African states. If anything, the relationship is the other way around. It's often a very weak, a very ill-informed, very disorganized court that is being manipulated by the likes of the Ugandan and Congolese governments who have been incredibly adept at using the court to go after their military and political opponents. One of the things that many African states have realized is that The ICC can only operate on the ground if it can cooperate with states. So the reasons, for example, that the Kenyan and the Darfur cases never went anywhere was the Kenyan and Darfurian governments basically shut the ICC down and those cases ultimately collapsed. Uganda and Congo and Cote d'Ivoire and Mali have done something a bit more subtle, which is they've recognized the weaknesses of the court. And they've said, look, we'll cooperate with you to the absolute hilt on one condition, which is that you protect us. You insulate us from investigation and you only go after our rebel opponents, our recently deposed political opponents. And the ICC has fallen into that trap. The ICC was desperate to get cases underway in The Hague. It it was all too willing to cooperate with these African states. And as a result of that, it it has been politically manipulated. Um, And if if anything, it has entrenched the likes of Yoweri Museveni in Uganda, um, the recently departed Joseph Kabila in, in, in Congo. These African presidents could cooperate with the court in the full knowledge that they themselves okay. were never going to be subject uh, to mm. justice, um, and, and they could entrench themselves mm. even further.
0: I want to move to the all-important question that is a forward-looking question you address in the book. How can we do things better to deliver justice? And that's the critical question, right? So that's very important. But but I, but I want to just have you underscore your, your critique here because there's such a false dichotomy that either it's an enemy or it's a perfect ally of african people the icc that you are saying no and we'll get to that in a second if certain things were done differently maybe even if it stayed in the hague which is not ideal there are different ways of of dispensing justice your book to reiterate is not anti-icc so much as looking at the details of its functionality
1: Indeed, and in the conclusion to the book, I basically set out a program of reforming the court. And I, let's, I,
0: let's 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 go right there, by the way, and, and, because each one of them is so simple. I thought to myself this morning as I was preparing for this discussion. I thought, God, why are they not getting on with it? Your 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 first prescription is how about getting staff from Africa?
1: Yeah, this is quite <laughs> a shocking realization. Is that I think the. The court has really failed on some very basic terms. Um, and one of the reasons that right across the continent, as I do my interviews in places like northern Uganda and eastern Congo, one of the complaints coming from communities that have lived through mass atrocity is this court is alien to us. It doesn't understand our needs. It can't deliver justice in a way that matters. And I think one of the reasons for that is you only have to look at the personnel of the ICC. Most of the investigators, most of the staff are, are not African, one of the really amazing things what about does
0: that matter? Because some person was might, might listen to this conversation and go, Oh, Phil, there, there is some global north white saviour imagining that, um, you know, domestic justice is the be-all and the end-all. What the people want is justice full stop. Whether well, it's dispensed by someone that was trained at so has, who cares? That's what they really, really want. But I gather that your further evidential point is that, Actually, the very principle of complementarity that the ICC is founded on is often undermined because some of these Jurisdictions in Africa do have the capacity, contrary to anthropological views otherwise, to actually deal with some of these issues. And in some of the people that you spoke to, they were of the view that if anything, sometimes even the standards of justice as the Hague are not the appropriate standards for, for, for what they may be able to dispense using their own resources. And I have to confess, as one of those South Africans who don't travel the continent enough, I too have often labored under the assumption that obviously there isn't a sophisticated legal infrastructure in place across the continent. You say that is false in many places.
1: Indeed. I mean, there's kind of two separate things there. So the the first one is that there is already a huge amount of momentum in many African states to deal with serious crimes in their own institutions. So one example that I talk about at great length in the book is in northeastern Congo. Yes. This is a place that 10 years ago, if you had said to people, the local courts in Congo will be able to deal with very serious cases on their own, people would have laughed at you. But in fact, that is what we've seen. We've seen a reform process in Congo, serious cases being dealt with in local courtrooms where cases can be observed by local people. Mm -hmm. So one of the key things I argue in the book is that to a large extent, the ICC needs to back off. It actually needs to give a lot more space to the court system in Congo, the court system in Uganda to deal with these situations on their own terms. But in cases where there is a justified reason for the ICC to be involved, it has to do justice much more effectively than it's doing at the moment. And part of that is changing its personnel. So, for example, it's amazing that this institution does not have a single investigator from any of the particular African states where it's working. So you're expecting American, Canadian, Australian investigators who I've interviewed and by their own admission had never been to the continent before are being parachuted into villages in northeastern Congo and are expected to build these criminal cases, and it's simply not working. What's even more remarkable is that and all... Not,
0: not because... And so your critique is not aesthetic that having a French Not Canadian in person it's, at the ICC leaving that, that thing, it is, practical. a case may be collapsing at a practical level because Abs- of this reason, as Absolutely. happened with, with one of the,
1: one of the rebels from, from the DRC. Absolutely. So it's, it's about expertise. Yeah. It, it's about having a particular knowledge of the local terrain as an investigator that enables you to speak the local language, to find witnesses, to understand the context, to uncover incriminating documents. In order to do that kind of very difficult work, you really need to know the place. So And and these kind of distant actors don't do it. Now, what's most shocking about this is that all of the international tribunals that came before the ICC, so the UN Tribunal for Rwanda, the UN Tribunal for the former Yugoslavia, they eventually learned that you had to have investigators from those local places. So we've already learned this lesson. But we get to the ICC, which began its work in 2002, and if anything, this court has taken a step backwards yeah. in insisting that you have to have these Westerners, these foreigners who don't know the context, and then believing that they will be most equipped to investigate. So Phil, the bottom ground. line
0: question. Is the court willing to self-examine the way you are urging it to do, and then what is the way forward? Is this ultimately a fundamental overall that is needed to deal with the structural and the prosecutorial weaknesses. Are we talking here about meaningful reform if only they were to get on with it? If you had a magic wand, what what, what would happen this afternoon?
1: Yeah, the, the, the court needs a structural change. What is interesting at the moment... And this is actually a really important time to be having these kinds of conversations because the court is on the back foot. Even a lot of supporters of the ICC have come out in the last six or seven months and said, we know this institution's failing because of the Bemba and the Bagbo acquittals. But also a very recent decision by the ICC judges not to proceed with investigations in Afghanistan. The judges basically said, we're going to shut the Afghan investigations down because we cannot get the cooperation of the U.S., This was hugely embarrassing for the court because what it says is if a powerful state refuses to cooperate with the court, the ICC cannot proceed. So there is a sense even within the ICC itself that the way that they're going about things is is ultimately not working, but... The prescriptions that I'm hearing a lot of actors in the ICC talk about are very tiny, they're very technical. What I'm arguing for is a total restructure of this organization from the personnel level onwards. And I think it's only if we How are you gonna deal
0: with the geographical issue? The title of your book is Distant Justice and that's a wonderful play there on justice quite literally not being seen and felt by victims of warmongers across the continent and the world, quite frankly. But one of your points is a geographical point. Again, if you had a magic wand, would a tribunal like this, assuming it was reformed at the level of expertise personnel, would it sit in the Netherlands? It, it couldn't do. You, you, you
1: would ha- absolutely have to ch- change the geographical focus of the court. And so one of the things I argue for in the conclusion is th- the establishing of ICC liaison officers okay. a- across the continent. And furthermore, so you would set up the court in capital cities in African states, but then you would physically hold trials in the villages where crimes were committed. And it's possible to do this. We've, I give lots of examples of other court processes that have tried to do it. The court says, look, it's logistically impossible. And what I say is we've already got precedence for taking justice into the midst of people who were most affected by these crimes. And so you shrink the distance.
0: I I would imagine then, I, I want to push you on this point a little bit. If the court said it's logistically impossible, we just don't have the finances, we've maxed out how much we're going to get from people that give us money. Would you say in that scenario, it's best for the court to pack up and no longer do any work? Because you also explore how justice is undermined very often. You take the TRC as an historical example. It's controversial here in South Africa. But nevertheless, you say, for example, where victims want to look perpetrators in the eye, which is why the picture on the cover of this book is so beautiful. They don't get to do that. They see the perpetrators on TV. (laughs) But when they want to look them in the eye, that can't be facilitated in some jurisdiction for fear that you may be shipped off to The Hague, for example. So if, if there isn't the money, To take that global institution, have it localized and meshed with local praxis, local legal structures and the politics and the expertise on the ground, then you can do more harm in the long term for the justice project across the world. In that scenario, would you rather the ICC did not exist?
1: Yes. I think I think the short answer there is that unless justice can be done in a way that resonates with local communities and can be seen and participated in, then it's better for the ICC not to be involved at all. And that's a very strong message that's coming from my community level respondents in the book. A constant refrain, for example, in northern Uganda and eastern Congo, amongst often victims of violence was that actually we have always been suspicious of justice done at a distance, even before the ICC got here. These are communities that have a memory of the way that justice was done under British and Belgian colonialism. And then they've seen it in their own national court systems in the last 30, 40 years. So one of the really interesting things that a lot of these communities were saying was, we're suspicious of distant justice way before the court ever got involved here. If we can't see justice being done, if we can't be part of the process, we are suspicious of it. And if the court can't overcome that sentiment on the ground, then in fact, it's better not to be there Last
0: question. I'm going to give you a minute to answer it. Assume the ICC headquarters was in The Hague. It had satellites across the world. Assume the personnel in each case came from the countries where the investigations are taking place in relation to folks allegedly who committed war crimes in those areas. But it lacks an army still. It lacks police enforcement mechanisms. What what do you make of the ICC in that scenario? Because what we've seen, for example, with Omar al-Bashir here in South Africa is that ultimately, despite the fact that the Rome Statute had been domesticated into South African law, that we were still – at the mercy of international relations and politics. And the legal nature of this conversation and of your work ultimately plays second fiddle to, 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 to politics, quite quite frankly. In the absence of something like a military or an armed wing, it will always be hamstrung by politics, won't it? One minute and final thoughts.
1: A- absolutely. Uh, I mean, we need to be absolutely realistic now about what this court can and can't do. And no amount of reform is going to overcome the fact that without an army, without an enforcement mechanism, the ICC can only operate if states on the ground cooperate. And that's why one of the final points in my book is actually to advocate for something much more radical which is to a large extent we we need to ignore the ICC and we need to put now our eggs in the basket of domestic approaches absolutely court systems that in fact do have enforcement mechanisms with their own police force with their own army we've spent too long mm. hoping that the savior of the ICC would come in and deal with these cases we need to now have a totally new conversation which is to go back to domestic remedies domestic courts truth commissions, even amnesty processes that ultimately, I think, are are going to be more effective. We need to focus on local remedies rather than the international
0: level. Phil Clark, author of Distant Justice, The Impact of the ICC, the International Criminal Court on African Politics. Thanks for joining us on 702.
1: You're very welcome.